we continue with Fisher v. United States, Petition for Writ of Certiorari, picking up on page 12. Reasons for Granting the Petition A. The D.C. Circuit's lead opinion construed Section 1512C2's Actus Reis in a manner that directly conflicts with this Court's statutory construction precedent. This Court has held that when there are two plausible readings of a statute's scope, one limited and one near-limitless, precedent and prudence require a careful examination of the statute's text and structure. This precept dovetails with the principle of exercising restraint in assessing the reach of a federal criminal statute. Restraint arises out of deference for Congress and concern for fair warning of what the law proscribes. Here, there is nothing more than one plausible reading of Section 1512C2. Four judges have reviewed subsection C2, and they arrived at three plausible readings. The district court viewed C2 as limited by C1, thus requiring some action over a document, record, or other object. But in the D.C. Circuit's lead opinion, Judge Pan viewed C2 as independent of C1 and encompassing all forms of obstructive acts, even while conceding that her reading of C2 criminalizes acts well beyond those anticipated by Congress. And though Judge Walker agreed in his conditional concurrence that C2 had a breathtaking scope, he opted to rein it in through a stricter interpretation of the mens rea, acting corruptly. Finally, in dissent, Judge Katzis viewed C2 as embracing more than physical evidence, like documents and records, but he would limit its range to acts of evidence impairment. The D.C. Circuit's lead opinion cannot be squared with Dubin v. United States 2023, supporting precedent. To avoid this precedent, the lead opinion declared that the term otherwise in subsection C2 was clear and unambiguous. But that declaration, too, conflicts with precedent from this court for at least six reasons. First, by reading the term otherwise in isolation and thereby according it an expansive definition, the lead opinion violated this court's whole-text canon. In other words, courts must not divorce words from their statutory context, which provides the primary determinant of meaning. This canon has particular import when, as here, the term at issue is capable of more than one meaning and introduces a residual clause. Second, this court has routinely employed the whole-text canon against surplusage. Put differently, the interpretation of a statute is directed toward giving effect to every word. The D.C. Circuit's lead opinion acknowledged this precedent, but discounted it by stating that superfluidity is not by itself enough to require a particular interpretation. While that's true, it ignores the other part of this court's surplusage precedent, that is, 
the surplusage canon is strongest when an interpretation would render superfluous another part of the same statutory scheme. Here, the lead opinion's interpretation collapses wholesale parts of section 1512 into subsection C2, and the lead opinion's interpretation absorbs other Chapter 73 offenses outside section 1512, including sections 1503 and 1505. The scope of the superfluidity alone warrants this court's review. Third, this court has used the canon of eusdem generis to construe general words like otherwise when they follow specific words. This rule prevents the general words from rendering the specific ones meaningless. The lead opinion's interpretation of subsection C2 renders C1 meaningless. Again, the lead opinion sidestepped this court's precedent by treating the rule as inapplicable unless the list of terms directly preceded the general term. Yet here, they are all part of one sentence. Fourth, this court has regularly applied the associated words canon, nociter associus, to determine statutory scope. This rule focuses on the neighboring words to establish the contours of a general term. As with the preceding canon, the lead opinion dismissed it based on the view that the associated words were too far away, but they are in the same sentence. Fifth, this court has construed other sections of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act to prevent similarly unrestrained readings of its proscriptions. In Yates, this court addressed the scope of 18 U.S.C. Section 1519. Section 1519 authorizes a prison term of up to 20 years for anyone who knowingly alters, destroys, mutilates, conceals, covers up, falsifies, or makes a false entry into any record, document, or tangible object with the intent to impede, obstruct, or influence the investigation or proper administration of any matter within the jurisdiction of any department or agency of the United States. The question presented was whether a fish counted as a tangible object under Section 1519. Writing for the plurality, Justice Ginsburg acknowledged, although a fish is no doubt an object that is tangible, it would cut Section 1519 loose from its financial fraud mooring to hold that it encompasses any and all objects, whatever their size or significance, destroyed with obstructive intent. Mindful that in Sarbanes-Oxley, Congress trained its attention on corporate and accounting deception and cover-ups, the plurality therefore concluded that a tangible object captured by Section 1519 must be one used to record or preserve information and does not include fish. In so holding, the plurality rejected the government's unrestrained reading of Section 1519 as a general ban on the spoliation of evidence covering all physical items that might be relevant to any matter under federal investigation. This court's intervention is required to correct the D.C. Circuit's unrestrained reading 
of Section 1512C, which divorces Section 1512C from its statutory context as an evidence impairment crime. Sixth, and finally, this Court and other Courts of Appeal have employed the above framework when interpreting analogous residual clauses. For example, in Begay, this Court considered the scope of the residual clause in the Armed Career Criminal Act, 18 U.S.C. Section 924E2B2. The question in Begay was whether a driving under the influence offense constituted a crime that, under Section 924E2B2, otherwise involves conduct that presents a serious potential risk of physical injury to another. This court determined that the proximity of the listed crimes, burglary, arson, extortion, or crimes involving the use of explosives, to a general crime otherwise involving conduct that presents a serious potential risk of physical injury to another was enough to indicate that the otherwise clause covers only similar crimes rather than every crime that presents a serious potential risk of physical injury to another. As this court explained, if Congress meant the statute to be all-encompassing, it is hard to see why it would have needed to include the examples at all. And the courts of appeal have followed suit. B. Other courts of appeal have interpreted Section 1512C2 consistent with the statute's historical roots and legislative purpose. At least two federal courts of appeal have limited Section 1512C2 to instances of corporate document shredding to hide evidence of financial wrongdoing. And this is how the district court viewed Section 1512C2 in Mr. Fisher's case. Four other federal circuits have given a more expansive scope to Section 1512C2, but they have uniformly limited the statute's reach to crimes of evidence impairment. The D.C. Circuit's expansion of Section 1512C2 beyond evidence impairment to protests at the seat of government thus conflicts with the interpretations of other courts of appeal limiting the scope of the same statute. C. Section 1512C2's scope remains unclear because neither the D.C. Circuit nor the District Courts have agreed on a definition of corruptly its mens rea element, thus further exacerbating the vagueness and overbreadth concerns. While some courts have limited Section 1512C2's scope by a particular definition of the critical mens rea element, corruptly, they have not defined it uniformly, and the D.C. Circuit's lead opinion declined to define it at all, even while stating that corrupt intent limited Section 1512C2's reach. The lead opinion nonetheless acknowledged three potential definitions. One, corruptly means conduct that is wrongful, immoral, depraved, or evil. Two, undertaken with a corrupt purpose or through independently corrupt means, or both. Three, 
conduct that involves voluntarily and intentionally acting to bring about either an unlawful result or a lawful result by some unlawful method with a hope or expectation of either financial gain or other benefit to oneself or a benefit of another person. In contrast to the lead opinion, Judge Walker addressed the meaning of corruptly, defining it narrowly to avoid rendering Section 1512C2 a vague and far-reaching criminal provision. Consistent with Justice Thomas and Justice Alito's dissent in Marinello, Judge Walker defined corruptly as requiring proof that the defendant not only knew he was obtaining an unlawful benefit, but that his objective or purpose was to obtain that unlawful benefit. Judge Katsis stated that a narrower definition of corruptly was insufficient by itself to narrow the broad actus rea. In any event, Judge Katsis declined to endorse the mens rea definition proposed in Judge Walker's conditional concurrence, observing that it relied, for the most part, on dissenting opinions. The D.C. Circuit Panel's internal disagreements over which mens rea definition properly limits Section 1512C2's reach is yet another reason for this Court's review. D. The scope of Section 1512C2 is a recurring question, and this case presents an ideal vehicle for resolving it. Hundreds of cases have been and will be affected by the scope of Section 1512C2, including a case against the former president. In addition, the use of Section 1512C2 outside evidence impairment crimes is an extraordinary and unprecedented extension of the statute's reach. Judge Katsis questioned a construction of subsection C2 that would reach the kinds of advocacy, lobbying, and protest that citizens often employ to influence official proceedings. These concerns are not speculative. Already, the broad scope of the D.C. Circuit's interpretation has yielded calls for its use in other contexts. Senator Cotton has begun probing why Justice Department officials have not launched criminal investigations under Section 1512C2 for those protesting gun violence at the Tennessee Capitol and those protesting Representative Jordan's House Judiciary Committee hearing in New York City. Indeed, Senator Cotton refers to the lead opinion in Fisher during his questioning. Mr. Fisher's case is an ideal vehicle for resolving the issue presented. His petition, in particular, is the optimal procedural posture as he has not been tried and the mandate in his case has been stayed pending the filing of this petition. Accordingly, a decision from this court would allow his trial to go forward with the legal questions resolved, and thus in the most efficient way possible. In addition, the interpretation of Section 1512C and its reach are questions of law and thus subject to de novo review. There is no extensive record here, 
nor any disputed facts concerning what happened on the 3-minute, 49-second video captured in the Capitol. The D.C. Circuit passed upon all of the legal arguments at issue in the case, and thus there are no questions of preservation that might otherwise create difficulties. With hundreds of cases awaiting trial and others on direct review, this Court's clarification of the scope of Section 1512 and the required mental state for a violation of the statute would provide critical guidance to district courts, prosecutors, and defense counsel. Conclusion For all these reasons, this honorable court should grant the petition for a writ of certiorari. Respectfully submitted, Councils for Petitioner Filed September 11, 2023 We've come to the end of this petition. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.